0: Whoever drinks beer, he is quick to sleep. Whoever sleeps long, does not sin. Whoever does not sin enters heaven. Thus, let us drink beer. All right, all right, all right. Welcome back to the Go to Hell podcast. Strong Opinions Weekly Held. I'm your host, Tim Curley, and I'm joined by my co-host, Colton Pierce. Colton, peace be with you.
1: Wow. Uh, thank you. I feel blessed now, especially with your wonderful uh, Matthew McConaughey uh, <laughs> entrance. That was amazing. Um, <laughs> Tim, how are we doing this week? Doing great. We're doing great. That's it? That's all you got for us?
0: That's all I got.
1: Wow. I'm doing great, just so we're clear. Uh, Just when you think water polo's done, they get you right back in. We started up club water polo uh, this week, so uh, just got back from that. I'm wet, and I'm cold, and I couldn't be happier, so we're having a blast out there. We've got 40 kids, um, which is huge since we just barely started on Tuesday. So um, Really excited. Uh, We thought water polo was dead. It's not. We're bringing it back. So, uh, bringing it back, baby. It's what we're excited about right now. But I'm also really excited because it's been a very long day. Um, it started early, and I just got off work basically at eight o'clock. And so now I get to finally indulge in a beer. Yeah. Sitting here, drinking beer, talking, guys. So our beer of the week this week, one of the beer, beers of the week, one of the beers of the week, is uh, Colton went out into the fridge and we found Ballast Points Aloha Sculpin. It's their hazy, it's tasty. We're drinking it straight from the can tonight. Sometimes we we crack them open and we pour them in a glass, but tonight we're we're roughing it. <laughs> and what is our other beer that we're consuming this evening?
0: I don't know. There's a couple out there. There's a Modern Times, and then there's some. I we'll find
1: have... something. We'll go out in the fridge. And we'll yeah, we'll have it. to. We'll, we'll do a, a beer of the week part two.
0: Um, yeah, so uh week's going well, and I I thought earlier you were fishing for an answer, so it is my birthday today, so. It's
1: today? I thought it was the 10th. I'm sorry. It's today. Happy birthday, Tim. Happy birthday. We're going to toss in like a huge old like happy birthday thing. <laughs> I don't know. We're going to find some clip from some movie. In- we'll drop
0: uh, Marilyn Manson. Uh, Marilyn Monroe. Wow. Marilyn Monroe.
1: Hey, just so we're clear, remember what I said? No, I know. <laughs> I was <take> thinking <it> exactly. <laughs> Marilyn Manson. We, we, have, we, have
0: problem. we have a hard time with Marilyn's and Monroe's very, and we Manson's.
1: We very fixated on Marilyn Manson.
0: <laughs> Apparently. I don't even listen to his music.
1: Oh, I thought he led a cult. <laughs> a joke
0: no, that was the one whose dress got blown up over the over the subway <laughs> actually that's not too far from the truth i guess if you think about it it's just a different kind of cult <laughs> uh, yes yes <laughs> oh dear so we're gonna do a hot topic and then maybe a big topic but the hot topic might take up most of the episode
1: okay if you just joined us we're talking about who is the best lord lord of the rings of the dance or of the flies that's tonight's hot topic hot topic
0: um partially because if we do try to do both it might be one of these marathon ones and i think we've done enough two-hour marathon ones for folks and, yeah we
1: purposely held it late tonight and so it's that way we also could, like, late already
0: it. for us we're recording into the wee hours of the evening so Uh, This is when I do my best work. (laughs) So, last weekend, we did a movie night at my house.
1: Woo! Actually, tonight I feel like tonight's episode is going to be called movie night. I think that'd be great. Sure. (laughs) We'll do do a couple of movie night episodes. I feel like there's movies that we could definitely
0: talk about. This this could become a thing. uh, (laughs) Go to hell at the the movies, or go to hell goes to the movies. There we go. Go to to the the movies
1: movies and hell at the same time.
0: We watched *Unforgiven*. Somebody wanted to watch westerns. A couple westerns got thrown out there. We decided on *Unforgiven*. We've got a f- list floating around of what the top uh, twenty movies are of all time with the group, and *Unforgiven* was on my list and your list. I think yeah, we just have a two a, of ours.
1: Yeah, we have a we have a list where we're trying to compile a nice. We have a, a group of guys that. Um, some of us are well-versed in movies, some of us are not. Um, Tim is obviously the most well-versed out of all of us in movies, um, and so he kind of has some big juggernauts on his list. Of And so we all compiled up 25 movies, thereabouts, um, and, and we're trying to put up a list of top 100 movies that we all want to watch and have each other watch and experience together and that kind of stuff and have a good time. And, and eventually, hopefully, rate them and decide which ones are actually the best and which ones are just for fun and that kind of stuff. Cause we also followed it up by watching Monty Python. Yeah, It was a double feature. Saturday night. <laughs> yeah, It's a double feature. Um, but yeah, so, um, unforgiven is, is one of those movies that are, um, if you haven't seen it, what I would say is, uh, stop watching or stop listening to our podcast for this episode tonight. Yeah. tonight Cause I was like, we'll be, I mean, well, yeah, if you, if, uh, if, if if you haven't, haven't seen it, if
0: you haven't seen it at this point, it's a 25 year old movie, I would imagine. First of all, what the hell's wrong with you? You should have watched it by now. It's Clint Eastwood's best movie. It's his best, uh, it's yeah, it's his best movie. It's his best movie. Um, he's phenomenal and is an actor. The, the
1: directing is great. Um, I think that if like, I think one of the more modern ones, like if you were like to like. When we say it's his best movie, yes, we've seen Grand Torino. like, <laughs> and it—that's a phenomenal Clint Eastwood film. Um, great movie, great message, um, and there's a lot of similarities. I would even say, yeah, um, to Unforgiven and that same kind of message that Clint Eastwood is trying to get across um, in his film. And but just Unforgiven is an—it's a phenomenal western, um, and yeah, it's his best movie.
0: And we're gonna break down what I think we're gonna talk about it and give Absolutely. people
1: reasons why
0: we think it'll give you an idea why it's it's so amazing because uh, it has one of the most memorable movie lines uh, for me, um, and it's a really powerful, memorable line towards the end of the movie. And then just the the plot is really it's,
1: very it, it's a great
0: it's a the reason why Unforgiven is such a great movie is. If you just show up, you're looking for a a nice a, a fun western. All oh, this is a bit of a dark western, but if you're looking for a gritty western. You're going to be entertained.
1: Well, what's funny is like if you if we're being honest, like the acting in it is not what makes it right. Like you're not. I mean, like you have Morgan Freeman, you have uh, you have um what is the uh, what's the British guy in that one? I, his uh, name's escaping me um Richard
0: and, uh, something Richard uh Richard Richard Harris. Richard Harris plays the Brit Gene Hack Gene Hackman is actually pretty phenomenal as Little Bill.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I mean like y- you have some huge you have some pretty big names in there. Um but it's really not about like this isn't a ca- Academy Award winning acting that you're seeing. So it's like you if you're seeing if you're trying to go in there and, and you're trying to see it from this kind of perspective but the story is just so captivating um and just the emotional um involvement of the characters that really makes it what it is it's just i i and when i say about the acting is just i don't feel like any character shines more than any other where it's like um i mean clint eastwood's is obviously the 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 main star and that kind of thing but it's Uh, there's so many different stories that are happening at once and you just see people for snippets at a time kind of stuff. And it creates this one, this huge thing of suspense that builds throughout the movie. And then eventually, um, kind of sets in uh, you, sometimes you, it's almost kind of unsettling how everything kind of resolves. And so, um, and does it it get resolved? And like, that's part of the whole, yeah, uh, the
0: acting does not drive the movie. Mm -hmm. Um, but I would the thing I would say about the story is if you're just sitting back, if you just sit back and like turn your brain off, it's still a fairly easy movie to follow, and it's entertaining. But it's also a movie if you watch it three or four times, or maybe if you're smart enough on the first go around, there is a lot of layers to the movie that can get peeled back. There's a lot being said that. It's not without being said. There's a lot of interesting choices made in the plot that I think raise moral questions. It's just it's a very, very deep movie. I don't think that's over like doing a movie critic over trying to read something in a movie that's not there. I think it was the guy who wrote it put a lot of time and effort into it. There's a lot of layers there's and a lot, a lot of things layers. being said. Again, not just in what is said in the lines, but in how the story unfolds. And I'll we'll, we'll get to start talking about the story, and I'll point out what I mean by that, and a couple of things that I find that are fascinating as to what happens and what it says about, uh, I think what the movie's trying to talk about. So, or maybe what I think it's trying to talk about. I'm not really sure. I'm not sure about what it's
1: want to talk about. So,
0: what do you want to give a quick like you said spoiler or do you want to give a quick overview plot overview? Plot
1: overview of the movie? Yeah, sure. We'll go I'll go quick and then we can kind of dissect details after that. So, I mean, um uh to start off the sto- uh, to start off the story, um um you have a girl in a town in Wyoming, um, some some very small small Town in Wyoming, in the in the West, um, in the Old West, if you will. Um, she uh, she is a uh, prostitute, and um, in the midst of uh, doing administering her services, uh, she giggles at a man's pecker, and so the man decides to cut her up um, and gets his buddy to hold her down um, to cut her up. Um and I think we'll get to kind of unload on some of that in a bit. And so uh the sheriff comes in and the sheriff does not do what the ladies feel like is just. Um, they believe that they should that their lives should be forfeit for their crimes that they've committed. Um, and the sheriff says that their lives or her life was only worth about five horses or the cuts that was made on her is worth about five horses, right?
0: Yeah. And she's not even getting the horses
1: and she's not even getting the horses. It's her, um, uh, I don't know what they would have called a pimp back then, but there you go. Um, the saloon the, owner. The, yeah, the saloon owner. And so they, they scrapped together their money to hire, uh, or to put out a bounty on the two guys. Um, and so um, through that process Clint Eastwood hears about it from a young kid that comes and rides in um, he's heard rumors about uh, Clint Eastwood's character and that he's a he's a man killer um, and the best that they've that there's ever been um, and so the kid tries to recruit him the the payment is a thousand dollars and they're gonna split it Clint Eastwood eventually agrees, even though he's got two kids, his wife is dead. Um, he leaves his kids by themselves. He takes off. He picks up his partner, um, who was also retired from the manslaughtering business, um, which is Morgan Freeman's character. And so the three of them meet up. They have tensions between them. Um, and it's a very huge concept of the movie is there's a lot of tension about um, being able to kill a man. Um, that's a huge part of the movie. Um, you know, that Clint Eastwood, you, you get the sense from Clint Eastwood that he struggles with a lot of the things that he's done in his past. That's why he doesn't drink anymore. That's why he doesn't do a lot of the things that he, that he used to do. Um, but other people have their coping mechanisms or whatever. Right. And so, um, and even on the, when you go and you see the sheriff, and you see, uh, this, this Brit comes into town and, uh, the sheriff is letting it known that his law is, and what he said was punishment is punishment enough, um, for those boys. And so he, this Brit was one of the, one of these guys that was coming out to pursue the bounty, um, and he beats the hell out of him, um, and puts him in jail. And he has a long conversation with this, uh, uh, this guy who has been tailing him around and he's been writing his story about what it takes to kill a man and, um, and nobody, and it's harder than you think. Um, and again, that message becomes huge throughout the rest of the movie. Right. That, that conversation between what is the bad guy is actually presenting something that these good guys are going to eventually struggle with because eventually uh, they ride into town. Uh, they run into the sheriff. The sheriff roughs up Clint Eastwood's character. He's on Death's door. Um, he gets to meet the. Um, the prostitute in that process, and then um, they go out and um, they kill the two guys. Um, they get they they go for that bounty in the process. Morgan Freeman's character uh, he he has a situation come up when they're trying to kill the first guy, and he can't he can't do it, and so um, he backs out on the mission or the. Their objective, and he rides off, but he gets caught up, and gets taken to the sheriff, and the sheriff kills him in a in a fit of rage after he finds out that they had killed the first guy, and so or the second guy, sorry. So after they kill the second guy, he kills Morgan Freeman's character in a fit of rage. And so the final part, the final parts of the movie is Clint Eastwood rides into town, and he settles uh, his rage that he experiences, but it, and rage is an interesting term, but, uh, with the sheriff and his posse that are running this town and he ends up blowing holes in a couple of guys and then he rides out. Um, and he goes home and moves off to San Francisco. Yeah. And so that's, uh, that's, brief very brief overview tried to hit some of the important parts that hopefully we'll be talking about this evening so um but yeah uh without any huge spoilers to our conversation tonight so anything i miss?
0: no i think you hit all the you hit all the main points broad strokes of the of the storyline um so we can let's dive into observations and We'll flush out you, you said you spent some time thinking about the movie. I spent some time thinking about about it. So I have some observations, maybe some questions and um we can kick those around, see where it goes. Uh I will say so you said at the beginning in the opening scene when the cowboy is slicing up the prostitute. You said his um partner goes in and holds holds her down does he does he ask him does he tell he him to him and he, him does, to. he but says, does. he do
1: it uh see that's the hard part where it's where we're it on. He's, right what we see is and they show the scene so <laughs> i was like currently what currently what his partner is doing is is having is uh partaking of the services of another lady in, next door right and they hear this commotion going on and they open the door to figure out what the hell's going on, and the the guy has a knife in his hand, and the la- the lady has cuts on her face, and he's saying, he's saying, "Hey, get in here and hold her down." <laughs> uh, I I don't even remember the reasons. It's a very tense moment. Obviously, it's not a like it's not a happy moment. Um. That's going on, but he does tell him to go in and, and hold her down. And so I'm assuming he has to have some sort of connection. It's not like he can be guilty by association just because of the guy. That's that was just my thought process through that. And I See, do that was my and I do understand it because and and this is important because I think I get where you're getting at, is because the guy so we'll talk about the guy that cut the girl up is as far as we can tell in the movie is extremely unremorseful.
0: Yeah. He seems like a son of a bitch.
1: Right. But his partner who seems c- completely removed from the situation, like it doesn't, it like, like what you were saying, like, did he hold her down? We don't really like, know. It, it, the camera, like it, it, the way that they presented it didn't really seem like he was very much involved in what was going on, but he's still guilty by association. And so, and when they bring in the horses, he brings in this, this select horse. He says this is the best of the bunch and he wants to give it to the girl that was cut up. Right. He's very apologetic and he's very, and he also has the most traumatic death scene. In That was,
0: that was the part of the plot that I was going to bring up that I think is an intentional part of the plot. For sure. That, uh, from my perspective, the guy who wasn't involved, but only their guilt by association. And and there's not even really an indication that these guys are like best friends. They're just two guys who run with another group of cowboys that are, I think, uh, open range. They're just horse wranglers. Horse wrang- yeah, wranglers. It. So they just happen to go to town at the same time, cause, but they're not like best buddies. And this poor bastard gets wrapped up into what this guy does.
1: And he has a bounty out on his head.
0: Ends up having a bounty on his head, and is the first one who gets killed.
1: He's the first one that gets killed, and he doesn't die nicely. No, right? Like, and and not like well, and I mean like not that anybody in this movie dies nicely, but um, have you seen the movie? He's he gets shot by a rifle. He gets he, a gut shot, and he just bleeds out. Right. But he's he's begging for water. He's thirsty. He's gonna die. You know, and it's just, and this is the moment where. For, for the for Clint Eastwood's character where, again, he starts to do something um, that everybody else is not able to do, right? Like that's that conversation about being able to kill a man and something like that. And you still see the humanity that goes on with Clint Eastwood in that scene. Um, where, again, he's the one that has to pull the trigger because Morgan Freeman's character is unable to do it. He says, I can't, I can't. And so Clint Eastwood does it and has to kill this man. And, again, there's there's this thing where Clint's character takes on the sins, if you will, of everyone around him, where it's, it's not this big sack-up moment where it's like, He's not looking at Morgan Freeman and calling him a pussy across the, like, thing. He's like, I understand. Yeah. It's, I understand, and I don't want to fucking do it either. But here we go. You know, like, and, and so there's, and, and I don't even feel like that describes the, the emotion that they're trying to create from Clint Eastwood's character. And I think that that's summed up with, the, with those lines that you're talking about. They're so memorable. Um, after the second killing, yeah, but there's there's still humanity in the man who's who's killing um, these people, and he's the only one that's able to do it. So yeah, I think, and yeah, it's traumatic. I thought that there was extremely intentional. And also what's intentional and and I believe that this is intentional, is, so the girl um, that got cut up, never once, does she ask for vengeance or justice? Okay.
0: Okay. This is, this was another one of my topics. <laughs> you keep going, but I'm so glad you brought this and noticed that brought it up.
1: No, she never once asked for vengeance or justice. It's ever. all
0: done around her. All
1: which I don't all it's, it's all done around her. They come in the, the girl and where the struggle is for the girls. And, and it's, and it's also extremely intentional is when it comes to the girls they want to feel like everyone else they want they don't want to feel less than they don't just because of the occupation and the way and the way things have laid out on the table for them and how things are run they shouldn't feel like they are less of a human being, like they get less of something than anybody else. And so what they demand is justice. They say, well, and the girls say, if you do this to one of our own, what keeps this from happening on a regular basis? We need justice for us. But the girl herself never asked for it. When they originally come up with the bounties and that kind of stuff, the girl can't even talk. They said that she smiled or something like that when they had heard that. And they were like, don't you worry, we're going to get them. And when the guy comes in and he delivers the pony, she wants to go out and accept it. But they hold her back. And they're like, no, she doesn't want that. Like, she doesn't want this from you. Correct, yes.
0: Everyone's speaking for her.
1: Everyone speaks for her the entire movie. Um, the entire movie. And so, I and I think it was very intentional that way. Because again, they wanted to present this situation where this man, where this guy is... Completely innocent. And they wanted that to be, uh, and he's just guilty by association. But everybody's written him off, and everybody's ready to kill him. Right? And that's, again, what makes that line at the end even more poetic.
0: Right? Yeah. So her care, whoever that actor, I think I might I'm sure we've seen that actress in other things. She did a r- remarkable job. Phenomenal. Um I would say my perspective was in rewatching it she is very uncomfortable with what is being chosen on her behalf for the entire movie. Yeah. Now she does quirk a smile when he rides away. After, after uh, Clint Eastwood's character kills everybody, she does crack a smile, a very slight one. But I don't think it's because, I don't think necessarily it's because she's happy he got all the justice. Because she didn't, sm- there's no scene of her smiling when someone tells her the two cowboys are dead.
1: Right. And Clint Eastwood doesn't ride out of the town a hero.
0: No. Well, there are no heroes in this movie at all. This is... And that's one of the things I think we'll get to. uh, This is not a movie about justice. This is a movie about vengeance. This is a movie about... The thin line between...
1: This is a movie about vengeance and the men who are asked to deal vengeance. Like, that was like... Because again, it's. What's crazy is like, I mean, I after this movie, there's a funny like, I, it just st- it just stuck with me a lot about Clint Eastwood's character. It's there's a line that I've heard before, um, and I've heard it in a couple of different places, um. And it, it was mainly from like these spec ops, uh, characters in movies or in video games, and they say. We get dirty and the world stays clean. Clint Eastwood's character gets dirty for everybody else in the movie. Because he goes in there and he kills the people that everybody wants dead. He goes in there and he kills them. um, And everybody gets to stay clean from the psychological damage that taking a life has on everybody else in the film. And that's the point, right? Like that's what they're talking about. That's why Bill has this this scene where he's like, "It's like it's easy to shoot a gun, but it's not easy to kill a man." And he loads a gun and he's and he tells the guy to shoot him. He says, "Shoot me." Right. You know, and 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 you have this. You have the kid who claimed that he killed five people, and you find out that he hadn't killed anybody. He killed one guy for the first time ever, and he swears it off for the rest of his life as he's drinking an entire bottle of whiskey.
0: Yeah, that, okay, so that's good. You, br- So that's the scene that's got, I think, one of the great lines in not only movies but books. Um, and it's, it's a line similar to what you were, t- that you talked about, you alluded to, um, the older Eastwood's gotten, there's a hint of there's a hint of a Christian world, and I'm not... Uh, you know what, what I'm saying yeah, here. I, get you, I, get you. I need everyone to hear me. I'm not saying Eastwood's a Christian, and I'm not saying these are Christian movies, but there is a Christian worldview. Well, it's in Torino, it's very explicit, because when he dies, he's literally... His arms are out like he's dying on the cross right. when he's sacrificing himself for the Hmong family, but... The older he gets, there's a lot of these these kind of uh, this Christian imagery, Christian worldview, kind of threaded in and out of his movies. Right, and the line is, uh, he's
1: the Chauville kid is trying. Th- the to kid,
0: cope. the kid is killed. Yeah, the kid k- kills the second cowboy. He's sitting under a tree, he, like Colton said, he's sucking down an entire bottle of whiskey and at first he's talking about how great it was and this, that, and the other, and the longer the conversation goes, the more he's clearly having a hard time dealing with it. Um, Clint Eastwood can clearly tell he's having a hard time dealing with it.
1: It don't seem real. I ain't gonna never breathe again, ever. That he's dead, and the other one, too.
0: All on account of pulling the trigger. It's
1: a hell of a thing, killing a man.
0: He take away all he's got, and all he's ever gonna have.
1: Yeah. Well, I guess they had it coming. We all have
0: it coming. It's just, I mean, I'm that I got the hair on the back of my head standing up right now. It's just an amazing line. And it really does sum up the whole movie because let's talk about Gene Hackman's character, little bill, because little bill is arguably the worst human being in the entire movie. Even though he's the sheriff, he's the law, but he does it with such vengeance that he's not—he's not a good guy for sure. Maybe he's not the worst guy in the movie, but it, there's certainly a thin line between the the will money of the world running around doing whatever he was doing as a as a youth, uh, shooting up and murdering other men, and the way little Bill disperses justice.
1: Well, sure, but I mean, like, here's something that again we look at. Again, it's a story about justice. It's a story about the law. It's a, um, and and Little Bill's character, Gene Hackman's character, is represents the law. And if we're being honest, in the United States, vigilanteism is not a thing. You cannot hire a bounty hunter to go out and kill people for you. illegal you you can't do that (laughs) and so um and so this is a representation of him enforcing his law and saying that this is unacceptable now he's a little brutal about it um right like when he goes after the british guy that's in there in the story um he takes away his guns and then he beats the well
0: he's a bit of his own sociopath he's just not
1: Right, no, I mean like he's just like, not I'm a not, cold killer. Yeah, I'm not defending him necessarily, but it's also this whole idea of, um, of he does represent something um, that it unsettles you a bit. But if you're if you honestly reflect on it, you're sitting there and you're like, well, technically, that is how the law runs. Right? I mean, sure, they don't necessarily beat somebody to hell. But if there was some assassin or somebody that was supposed to come in here right into town to figure out about killing somebody, that person would be arrested on the spot. 100%. Can't have intention to kill. Right? Like that's, right. Uh, these are, so he's actually representing laws that are in place in the United States and he is trying to, in the Wild West, rein that in but you don't want it as a viewer. You should you are not rooting for little bill.
0: Well, I think there's a reason for that. It's because he might be the law, but he's not justice. I mean, he creates, he creates the problem by,
1: by not giving, justice. by not
0: giving justice to the original crime, which then leads to these series of events that lead to eventual, to his eventual death.
1: Right. But here's the question is, but also this is something that's important is the women request justice and they want a particular thing to occur and if it doesn't happen, then it's not good enough. And again, this, is, this points back to the law and the system that we currently live in where it's like just because that's what you want to have happen, if it doesn't happen – do you take the law into your own hands yeah
0: no i'm not just i'm not saying that no 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 but, i wasn't saying yeah. that
1: i i'm saying that there's beauty in little bill's character from the way that they drew him up to where actually besides the part where he beats up the the bounty hunters before they have intention to kill And before, I mean, like, they kill Morgan Freeman's character. Um, He's torturing him to try and get information out of him. Besides those parts, technically, I mean, like, if you really break it down, Little Bill's character is not in the wrong by American law standards. Besides the, 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 again, the the roughing up of people. That's true. I
0: I have a theory about Wild Bill, though, that's not, it's a total fan theory. It's I think while Bill, I think his character w- wasn't always a lawman, and I think he was a William Money in his youth.
1: Yeah, no, I I feel like that's hinted at. In the, I, it's in, kind of hinted in, at in the situation, and one hundred percent, because he
0: kind of knows the same kind of people Will, yeah, yeah, William William yeah. Money knew, and he certainly knows uh, English Bob. He, he's fully aware of English Bob, and they've uh, they're apparently. Uh, they've crossed paths before and so I get the sense that the rage that comes out of Little Bill when he is beating English Bob and beating the Morgan Freeman character is him excising the demons of his past and taking it out on these guys, because he's now reformed and he's on the law. He's on the other. It, he, look, he's the Old Testament, <laughs> and it's verified in by what he says before he dies. His last line. So he gets shot.
1: That's a great line. That's actually that's the other. Favorite. That's
0: that's the other great line. He says he, he gets shot and he looks at he looks at uh, at uh, Clint Eastwood and says, "I don't deserve this." To die like this, I was building a house. Deserves
1: got nothing to do with it. I'll see you in hell with money. (laughs) Yeah. I love that so much. Like, yeah, no, the I don't deserve this. I don't I, deserve this. I've, I paid my penance.
0: I've paid my penance. I'm on the right side of the law. I'm right. justified in everything I do.
1: And again, deserve has nothing to do with it, right? And that's also the the line at the tree with the the, the Schofield kid. He deserved it.
0: We all deserve. We all it. deserve it.
1: Yeah, and that's the thing about killing him, man. You take, you take what he's got, and you take all that he's ever gonna get.
0: I get your point about the law, and I get your point about vigilantism, but I think the movie does point out... That I think the, the movie is trying to talk about when the law starts going outside of what should be some sort of just behavior.
1: Listen, I mean... My my claim about that is never not – like, you have – if you want to see this played – all I'm recognizing with this is if you want to see this play out on a regular basis, watch any superhero movie. Oh, sure. Like, yeah, you know, yeah, like, yeah. I'm like, this whole dynamic is still played out. It's – and everybody roots for the superhero never for the cop, right? Like, that's the – even if the cop is doing everything that they're doing – correctly you're still like why are you why are you upset with this guy he's just trying to do right and that's and you're seeing this on a, you're seeing a significantly more evil man with a little bill uh than the police officer in a superhero movie but again the principle is still very much the same where what Clint Eastwood is doing is something that is completely outside of the law sure that's taking the law into his own hands um again that idea of I get dirty so the rest of the world stays clean. I killed a man so that way it's not on your psyche. That way it's not on you. It's not and that's and that becomes a thing. It's not actually about whether or not people have the capabilities to do it. And that's what little Bill points out in the movie is everybody has the ability to kill a man, right? Like you have you have the tools at your disposal at any given time. You have the gun, you have everything, but it takes a lot more than that to kill a man. Well, our
0: buddy Andy talked about that on our podcast, our self-defense pacifism gun episode, where where he pointed out, you know, the, the military training, law enforcement training, even just how they train you at the gun range now for you to carry your permit is they're trying to dehumanize you in a way to where you can pull the trigger if you're actually staring at a human body, because it's, we don't really,
1: it's not natural. It's
0: not a natural thing. Unless, unless we have this fit of absolute rage. Right. Um, and even then taking a life is a pretty big deal. Um, so, um. Did you have other observations? Yeah. I no, I have one more. I just thought of one. Where
1: well, you go, you go.
0: It's interesting. So you laid it out nicely. So they when they finally get around to where they're killing again, Freeman's. Freeman's got the gun they need to use. He's the one who's the crack shot with it. So he's going to do the killing up until this point. He's been pretty laissez faire. He doesn't seem to have any. There's no outward appearance, no indication that he gives that he's got any problem with their past. The past is the past. Now he's married and it is what it is. Right. But as you pointed out, Clint Eastwood clearly does. Um, he'll tell anybody that he that'll listen that his wife reformed him. Um, he doesn't do those things anymore. And then we find out in a later scene when he's going having this really high fever and he's hallucinating that he's seeing the faces of uh, the face of somebody he's killed and he's and it's torturing him. Right. So he's clearly got demons that he's dealing with. Right. And yet when we get to the moment, this moment where the the killing's got to be done, like you said, Freeman, it kicks in and he can't do it. He is actually, he has been uh, (laughs) domesticated, to, to use a poor phrase, he can't do it. Right. And whatever, what he doesn't have what Will Money has, which we find out later in the movie he doesn't have that sociopath inside that turns on because we see it later. Right. When he's, when he's informed that Morgan Freeman's been killed, he has said that through the whole movie that it was drinking, that when he drank, he started doing bad things you w- really watch that scene his face changes when he finds out it turns into dirty hairy face right and the switch turns on he starts drinking but it's not the booze that turns him into the killing machine
1: no the booze is the coping mechanism the booze
0: is the coping mechanism
1: right and that's uh, but uh, and i think it's great that you brought this up because this is what i was going to talk about is is again uh, throughout this movie it is I am it, it it really just goes into the whole idea of killing a man and it's just so funny like when you listen and and we talked about it again in our podcast that we talked with Andy is is again everybody wants to act tough somebody comes into my door you know they break into my home and I'm, I'm killing him right there. Everybody talks like the Schofield kid. You know. Yeah. And the crazy part about Morgan Freeman's character is Morgan Freeman's character is killed. Right. That's the, and that's the part that's important. Is he's not the, he's not the the belligerent asshole that hasn't killed anybody yet. He's somebody who knows the toll, and he's not ready to pay it again. Yeah. And so. Clint Eastwood – and that's the hard part where it's this burden that that Clint Eastwood bears in this movie of he'll be your Huckleberry. (laughs) Uh, And he doesn't want to. He never wants to. Right? It's I'm changed. I don't do this anymore. I don't – this isn't me. This isn't – I don't drink. I don't do this. And then it becomes – nobody's here to step up to the plate but the right thing needs to be done and so that's what he does is he goes and does what what everyone else who watches the movie feels like is the right thing to do right nobody would be okay they killed the two cowboys they get the money they do get the money they get the money it gets dropped off right there at their feet and that's when he finds out that Morgan Freeman's character has been killed Morgan Freeman's character didn't get killed; they'd ride off. You'd yep. have no problem. Yep. But it's you sit there and you're like, "We need vengeance." You're thinking it as you're watching the movie. We need vengeance for Morgan Freeman's character. Little Bill has to pay. That guy's an asshole. That guy's a prick. And so Clint Eastwood goes in there and he does the dirty work. And. And he's the one that has to deal with it again. Right? And that's the thing where, again, he's the one who, like I said, he doesn't ride out of there the good guy. You said that the 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 chick smirks. But every other prostitute that that paid for him to come in are not happy. Nobody's happy in that town. Nobody's no. celebrating. Nobody's nothing. He makes threats. Right? He's like... Um, as he leaves it's not it's not a happy occasion and he leaves and that's it that's the story and so it's it's really powerful again about this guy who has taken on the burdens of other people right it was the Schofield kid that wanted him to go that wanted him to to get the money it was uh, it was Morgan Freeman's character that said that you know It's not that big of a deal. You can can deal with it, blah, blah, blah. And they they keep talking about it throughout the movie. They have their own coping mechanisms. And meanwhile, Clint Eastwood's character is obviously very distraught by a lot of this. He deals with the demons head-on on on a regular basis um, throughout the movie. And then eventually, the guy who's been struggling the entire time is the guy who takes it all on. Takes it all on except for the guy in the bathroom.
0: Yeah. The cowboy who actually did the,
1: yeah, the cowboy who actually, actually did the crime, right? Which which actually event. makes it even it was significant. That's also something that I think was extremely intentional. Is that that's the one that the the kid shoots? That's the guy who actually did the crime. That's the guy that's the actual prick, and it still tore that kid apart. I was like, the other one. Could you imagine if he killed the other one? Oh yeah. Exactly, so it's just – but I mean like – and that's also part of it is there's a game of telephone that's also very intentional oh, um, yeah. in the film, right? They talk about where they were cut, like the, the woman's eyes were cut out. Eyes are cut out. Her were tits cut were cut, cut off. Yeah. Like, you know, it was like, oh my gosh. And, the, and it, the story gets bigger every time it gets told. And then you see her and she just has cuts on her face. Um, so I don't know. It was, it was very interesting. It was a great movie, great time to be watching it. Uh, Clint Eastwood, Morgan Freeman, Gene Hackman, Richard Harris. Is it Anna Thompson that did? Uh, that was the prostitute. I don't know. No, no. I don't think so. Anyways, phenomenal movie. Loved it. So, anything else to say about it?
0: Uh, just a quick observation that you pointed out before the the prostitutes are basically upset because they're prostitutes so they're being objectified that's the nature of their work but in the way justice is being dispensed they have become literal objects so when they're trying to figure out what the punishment's going to be they are being spoken about, spoken as as property, because that's what they are. They're property. The guy who owns the saloon paid for them, paid for their travel from somewhere on the East Coast to come there, work his place. He's got a contract with them. He's got sunk cost into them to the travel costs and all that, and so he sees them as property. They have literally become objects, and they're fed up with it. That's why they're angry. They're being treated like like uh objects and they they're they're sick of it. That's why the guy cuts her up, because he just sees her as an object. Yeah. Clint Eastwood does the same once the psycho turns on. He goes into a a a, a saloon full of I don't know, eight guys, ten guys. I think right more than 10, he lets five or six of them go. And the crazy turns on and he just sees objects in there. And so you, I mean, the movie, the movie starts and begins with basically what happens when we take human beings and, and turn them into objects and the bad stuff that happens. So
1: no, I think that's great. We got our next, uh, We've got our next IPA here. Um this is hilarious. This is gonna be funny to say on here. We are drinking a hazy triple IPA, which again did not know what we were doing.
0: And I know I don't think I've ever had a Hazy. Maybe I have had a hazy triple It's
1: a ten percent. Hmm. Um and it's called the reverse glory hole. Uh hazy triple IPA. <sighs> so um, honestly it's pretty tasty. It I, is. and just so we're clear, I am getting a little hint of vanilla.
0: It is tasty. It's from LB, LBC.
1: Yes, LCB.
0: LCB up in Tatchby.
1: Yeah. Hey, no, seriously. You get like a little hint of vanilla in that? Yeah. It's not bad.
0: Not nearly as much as that vanilla milkshake, though. All right, let's delve into the main topic, <sighs> which I think is going to be part of an ongoing ser- series.
1: I think it's already an
0: ongoing series. Yeah, we're in the middle of an ongoing series. Meaning, we'll we'll keep going after this episode. Um, we talked about it two episodes ago. Uh, specifically, there's been other episodes like the the aforementioned um, gun and self defense episode. We delved into it to a bit a bit. We're gonna talk again tonight about. What it means to be an American Christian and trying to be mindful of deconstructing being an American from our faith and and not having our faith informed by being being an American or being a Republican or or whatever we whatever it is outside of being a Christian, um, because I think a lot of us and it's probably not just the case in the United States, but we're America, so speaking for Americans i think a lot of our christian beliefs are are it maybe not mostly but un, to a, to an extent that it's unhealthy are informed by non-christian beliefs yeah um in the last episode we talked a bit about uh how america's not a christian nation And, you know, the whole myth of America being a Christian nation and um, some other issues like that. I do want to circle back to the America being a Christian nation. And I do want to give a defense a little bit about myths. Every society, every country relies on myths it is part of the ecosystem that keeps it going right you can't just re- you can't go around and just operate on reality right because <laughs> countries like people are really f- are fallen and i mean if i think we're kind of no matter what you're on the political aisle i think if you're honest with yourself, maybe you're on the left, you're seeing some of the problems where we go out of our way too much to deconstruct some of the myths that we have historically. Cause if you just leave it to where we're just a his- history with a bunch of lying pieces of crap and everyone uh, ex- before this generation were horrible people, there's not much for anybody to really feel that great about being an American. Um, and I would even extend that to Christianity. You and I have talked about, we believe there's parts, significant parts of the Bible that are actually myths. That doesn't actually, when you look at it from this point of view, that doesn't detract from those things that are myths in the Old Testament. Right. They are important. Peoples need myths in order to give them a foundation of where they came from, an idyllic view of who they are, where they're going. And so I'm going to speak on behalf of Colton. You can tell me if I'm wrong. We're not saying that we can just, that we should just go around now and just say, oh, America's a, a, you know, it was never a Christian nation. It's fine to, if, you know, you want to have some idyllic view of the revolution and the founding, that's fine. But you can't equate it to where this is like, God we're God's chosen people that that's when it starts getting dangerous and has gotten dangerous to say you know we had that we do you know it was the the several weeks of the of the founding father sitting in philadelphia crafting the constitution the constitution is an amazing document these are people that were very highly read in philosophy and government roman history greek history uh, they knew the French philosophers. They knew the, the Scottish philosophers. They created a remarkable document, but that doesn't mean like Jesus was in the room. God was in the room informing them, creating this new country. that was going to be this shiny, shiny beacon on the hill telling everyone in the world that, you know, democracy now throughout the world is going to be the new savior for humanity and you know Christianity and democracy are hand in hand which I think we do a lot of intermixing
1: yeah I think uh, just to start off um, I think one it's extremely important to recognize for for Tim and I both um, we both love absolutely love the country that we live in um, it's with that love of like, I mean, the the world cup, um, has been this past month and, uh, I'm a, I'm, uh, currently the president of the United States fan club, um, in our area, um, for the us soccer supporters around here. We love And we go nuts for the United States. Um, I love the opportunities that I've been able to have living in this country that I would not be able to get in other countries around the world. Um, there, yes, I understand that there is that there are other countries that, that could give you the same opportunities and that kind of stuff. And, I, and for those that are a part of that, that's awesome. I wasn't talking about you. I'm glad that you think that the world revolves around you. Um, but no, I wasn't talking about you. I was talking about um, a third world country or a country where um, things are not able to happen. So we are extremely blessed um, to be here. Um, and there are a lot of amazing things that go on in our country that um, that we should be thankful for. That anybody who is a part of any country that partakes in those types of things should be grateful for it at any given time. Um, so again, just prefacing... That we do love and we do appreciate things that are here. And it's with that love for this country that also we recognize that there are flaws um, that exist. Um, There are things in our country that just... That are not good. And that they could go with some change. But also it's important to note is that as much as we love our country... I have dedicated my life to Jesus Christ and to God first before yeah. I've dedicated myself to my country. And God says I am to be for all people of all nations. And so therefore, I will always put the needs of people of all nations before the needs of my own country. Because that is what Jesus has called me to do. I understand that that's not necessarily what everyone in the United States needs or feels like they need to do. But, just so we're clear, that is probably the biggest sign, in my opinion, that we are not God's country. If you believe that God's country is an exclusive club, then I'm sorry, you're wrong. Yeah. If you believe that that God's country is defined by borders then you're wrong and i mean like that's not talking about that's not talking about the mexico border that's not talking about the canadian border that's not that that's if you if you believe that it only extends to certain cultures if you believe that like and this is just what's so bizarre to me and it's something that i've struggled with in the past like year and a half two years three years maybe is i don't understand I understand politics, I understand money, I understand economic systems, I understand trade, I understand all that kind of stuff. Believe it or not, I was a business major at one point, I I get it all. I understand foreign relations, I understand politics, like I said. But everybody knows that technically the thing that makes Mexico Mexico and the thing that makes the United States the United States is actually just a border between them. Or what makes Canada Canada and the United States the United States? I mean, if you were to move the border five inches north versus five inches south, does that make the people any different? Does that make it right? Like, it doesn't. Like that's These are still people on the planet. And for whatever reason, we have beef with the people that live south or the people that live north. We have competitiveness. We have issues with them because of this i mean we see it already in the united states quite a bit we're from california we understand that we are not liked by a lot of states and we get that we understand but at the same time this whole system exists and yet we hold grudges and we hold issues with our brothers and our sisters that are in different places around the world because they're from that part of the world? That doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. Why should children in the 60s be, or why? I was like, the 60s, if you wanna, I mean, even now, how do our children view Iranian and Iraqi kids? Kids from the Middle East. In the 60s, how did they view Russians? We always talk about all the time about how um, how North Korea teaches their children. Right. How they teach them to do math. If You have 10 American bastards and you kill five of them. How many American bastards do you have left? Right. And I mean, like, so we say that about North Korea and that's how they, they teach their kids. How do we teach our kids? What things are we feeding our children to where we have issues with people around the world? When again, if you want to recognize what is God's country, this whole world is God's country. And that's not to be like this hippy dippy, like peace, love, you know, kind of person or whatever. That's legitimately the mission that you have been called upon to be a part of. And because the United States has said those people do not support freedom. They don't support the rights that we provide, which you have decided are God-given rights. And therefore, they're against, at some point, it's against Christianity. Right. We're fucking crusades. That's what we're doing. We have issues with what's going on in the Middle East because they're doing things that aren't right by the Bible standards, and this is God's country. That's why we have, and th- that's not why the military's there. That's not why the government is there, but that's how they get your buy in. Correct. Yeah, that's how they sell it. To support you that's, there.
0: That's how they're selling what we're doing in Ukraine. Right. It's not that we're there because we have an interest in Ukraine that's economic or these are the things that people in government don't want to talk about. It's no, what we need to sell that they're, they're, they're victims, peace loving and they're, they're victims and they're freedom loving and that, you know, their democracy and all this kind of stuff, which is a lot of that's nonsense.
1: And right. And here's my thing. Also something to be said about the whole, like Ukraine situation is I never, never, ever support war. And, I don't know what Vladimir Putin is doing, um, and it makes me sick to my stomach, absolutely. I don't know... I I don't know what happens in a person's brain to where they think that it is okay to go and hurt other human beings um, and to move them out of their homes and to go in... And I, I I don't even understand the conquering of territory. Like, that... This still doesn't, like, equate in my brain how this, like, I don't understand it. Like, this seems like imperialism was, is in my mind, I thought it was dead. I understand what the United States did in Afghanistan and, and, and all that kind of stuff, and I get it 100%. If you want to point the finger, like, you know, every time you point the finger, you got three pointing back at you. I got it. Um, and we use nine eleven for an excuse for a lot of things. Oh hell yeah! That were not right, and the we're at, never ending excuse. And the United States, and and the public is, is finding out more and more. And once the emotional, once we are starting to recover from the emotional damage, that's something that also needs to be said. Is that the public responded because of how horrific that tragedy was. Right? like, and, and it's something that is still felt in the United States to this day 21 years later. There's still emo- emotional trauma from that event. And so we ask – I mean I would ask for anybody who was listening to this for – that is not a part of the United States or whatever um, or does not align with the United States. I, I would ask for patience. Um, and how rash we are with some of those decisions. I know that not everybody gets that. Not everybody gets the patience and not everybody gets to ask for that and that kind of stuff. It's just that we haven't seen something on that scale in a very long time. And so with all that being said, I still say that our priority as Christians if we are truly a, to be a part of God's country, the United States is not God's country. This whole world is God's country. We are one people, um, and we should always extend love to every single person on this planet before we try to take care of our own, so to speak. There's no our own. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, Tim, you got anything? I have a question for you. Uh-oh.
0: It's a question I've mulled over for quite a long time. I've oh. gone back and
1: forth on it. Do you want to drink whiskey first before you ask? <laughs>
0: no, drink more of that can of thirsty
1: left. Yeah, I hear you. Go.
0: Um, I'm stipulating that we've had Christian presidents, I think it's pretty clear George W. Bush. Is a pretty deep man of faith.
1: Sure. Yeah. Uh, uh, what Carter is our biggest? <laughs> Jimmy Carter yeah.
0: certainly. He was not my politics, but, um, you know, if anything, that guy's the perfect example of where I'm going with this with this question. Certainly a Jesus follower. Um, we've we've had Jesus followers in the White House and other parts of the government. But it does beg the question can you be a true Jesus follower and make decisions as best as humanly possibly best as a Jesus follower and be the President of the United States? In a world that we in the world that we live in, in the decisions that have to be made. I mean, putting aside the fact that you're now def- you're now representing a country that's less than half Christian, and you know, just assuming that that let's say forty percent of the country that is Christian is also or a good majority of it is fully living out its faith. Um, but even before then, when it was a when we were in our Judeo Christian um, era of. Mm. We were a Judeo-Christian countries; we were for two hundred years. I don't know. I think one is left with a lot of decisions that you're either putting aside, like getting voted out, and all that, like making bad political decisions, just making making decisions. that are either going to be what Jesus would want. Let's take 9-11. 3,000 people are dead. New York City's got two, well, more than two smoking buildings. Uh, Families devastated. Not only families in New York, but families around the country because they had people on those airplanes. The Christian response is to stand up and say, we're going to turn the other cheek and we're all going to pray for our enemies. The guy wouldn't last a day in office.
1: Right. I think...
0: Which is a testament to the men who have been Christians because I think they've done their best And maybe they did think they were doing what God wanted them to do, and and you and I disagree with them on that. But maybe not. Maybe they're like, well, I signed up for this, and I have to make decisions because I've I've taken a human... I've taken a job that lives in the human world, even though... You know know what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. And I have to make a human decision, and I might have to answer for this when... I see my
1: maker. Yeah, I think I think I mean short answer. Yes, you can be a Christian and hold that office.
0: Oh, well, I'm I'm saying like fully live out to like what you're talking about. No,
1: I know. I I no, I I know what you're saying.
0: Okay.
1: I said yes, you can but like what you're saying, you, you wouldn't last a day. You would need to... You would commit... You would commit political suicide.
0: You, you might commit treason.
1: I don't know if treason would ever happen. Well, I mean, you could...
0: Someone could argue that if, if after 9-11, George Bush says, we're just going to turn the other cheek, that you'd have people accusing him of treason.
1: No, I mean, sure. People could accuse you of treason. Um... I mean, I'm sure you could hide behind lots of things like, you know, the constitutional, like you have to go through Congress before you make an executive decision about war or anything like that. <laughs> uh, which would well, be... that's
0: what I would do if I was, <laughs> I was like, I, actually, I, 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 I would I, actually go to Congress and actually <laughs> ask for a declaration of
1: war, but I'm old-fashioned that way. <laughs> Looking at you, good old uh, FDR. Um yeah no, yes, it's completely possible is it plausible no no one I was like it's completely possible that you could vote for somebody who who wanted that and that's how they wanted to live their life i don't I don't think anybody would vote for them um yeah, politics is funny um everybody knows that all politicians are crooked, but yeah, we continue to vote for them. I think pres I mean, you talked about one of the the great myths that exist. Um, and you can come at me if you wish. Um, and I'm sure our our viewers will come at me about the myths. Uh, there are myths that are around voting in the United States. I do believe that I don't. I'm not a conspiracy theorist by any means. Um, but I do believe that the, there is a myth behind voting as far as uh, you believe that you have a buy-in and a say in your government. Um, And so that makes you a good little sheep. Um, And so therefore, like, through that voting process, and listen, I vote. If anybody thinks that I don't vote, like, I vote. Um, But there's an idea that has been pitched to the United States, and it was pitched from the very beginning, that you have a buy-in and you have a say in what goes on in your government. Um, and so therefore that allows you to be a part of it. And so people feel like they are a part of something that they actually aren't a part of at all. Um, and they're not very much a part of the decision-making process because technically you're voting for a person that you have no control over. You have control over how long they stay in office. You can, um, vote them out. But what we've learned is that that takes a very long time. Um, so Trump has been indicted for how long now?
0: (laughs) He just keeps getting in more and more trouble. Right, sure, but I mean, like, okay, so but still, (laughs) but
1: still, twenty twenty four is still something that they're that they're saying, right? Um, And I mean, like, you see the recalls that happen and that kind of stuff. There is power in the people. Please don't, please don't make it seem like there. I I, that I'm saying that there isn't. I'm saying that there is a huge myth surrounding voting. Um, That's why the, the voter turnout for president is the highest out of anywhere else or out of any election and yet your vote counts the least and you have the least amount of say over what happens with the presidential election What you should be voting for and i advocate for this every time is you should be voting for local officials That's where you're going to see the most effect from your vote. That's where you're going to, those people actually know your problems. They know what you're dealing with. Vote for those people on the school council for all that kind of stuff. Where that stuff is extremely important. I wish that I could, if I could tell anybody anything about politics, is that's where the change happens. That's where you are mostly going to be affected by whatever it is that you see. Your vote for president is basically like, being a fan at a football stadium, you have like little to no effect on the game. Don't get me wrong. Like if the home team's playing, you know, and like you have the most, you're a part of the home team. Like you feel great, you feel a part of it, you get all that, blah 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 blah, and you get to say, "Yes, we won," um, and like, yes, and just like they say that the home crowd has an effect on the overall turning point right. of the game. Like that is how presidential elections run so yes you are a very 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 minuscule effect on the process and whatever and so you can sit there and say yes then that still counts and you're like absolutely it counts and i will admit that does not exist in a monarchy that doesn't exist in putin's Rain, you know, whatever we want to call that, you know, like I get that dictatorship, whatever I 100% you have more buy in, but I think that the United States believes in that voting so much um, that it causes problems. That put aside, is when it comes to voting for somebody Christian, um, and that and not like Christian, like. Um, Like, you just say it, and then you, like, go to church on, like, Sundays. Like, no, we're talking about somebody that legitimately is, like, actively pursuing the faith. And all of their stances are based off of Jesus' teaching. Like, they're like, I won't do this because this is Jesus' teaching. <laughs> blah, 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 blah. I don't think so. I don't think anybody will vote for him. I think people want people to get their hands dirty. There's people in this country all over this country that want war. They have no problem with war.
0: Well, oh, look, there's a lot of people who are believers. They're and... old testament. <laughs> there's a lot of people who are believers. Um, and it's not I wouldn't say it's one particular side of the political aisle. It's it's on both sides of the aisle that believe that the unit US military is 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 a means of going out and, you know, saving people from, you know, saving them from whatever circumstance they're in and delivering them into this freedom, this, this, a free country where Christianity can flourish religion can flourish and all this other kind of stuff.
1: Yeah. I, and this is actually something that I've recently struggled with, like probably in the past six months. So. Uh, no, I guess it's more like ten months now. So in uh, at the beginning of this year, um, sophomores, which I was teaching sophomores last year, we read um, a very uplifting, um, uh, high spirits book. It's called Night by Ellie Wassell. Um, for those of you guys that don't know. Um, That is a book about the Holocaust. Um, And it's a first-person account of what happened in the Holocaust. Um, As an English teacher who has to read it six times, it's very brutal um, to read over and over and over and over again. Um, uh, Hopefully, everybody who listens to this podcast actually believes that the Holocaust happened because it did. Again, we don't wear tin hats or tinfoil hats. Uh, I was at this point and we got to Ellie Wassell's, Um, And so the kids, we, we do a couple of extra activities that kind of cover it. Um, the kids don't really understand a lot of it. It, it, it. I don't blame high schoolers for not being able to sympathize and empathize with what is going on um, in night. I don't blame them. It's very difficult for them. Um, it's just very hard as a teacher, um, and as somebody who hates violence, to be listening to you know stories about babies being flown up in the air and uh, the Nazis using them as target practice while they're alive, um, and just just hearing that image and just picturing that, and meanwhile I got kids giggling in the back. You know, and I get it, like, that's a coping mechanism. Like, I understand that, like, kids are uncomfortable or whatever, and they giggle, but they're making, like, you know, they're making Holocaust jokes in the back. And it's just, like, really not the time, guys, because I'm really uncomfortable, um, you know, and that kind of stuff. Uh, and so we get – eventually we do some side activities, and we look at – Ellie Wissell gave this speech um, towards the turn of the century with uh, – Clinton uh, in front of uh, Hillary and and Bill, and and he gives uh, this extremely famous speech. It's called The Perils of Indifference. And Ellie talks about... um, he talks about the fact that the United States knew about what was going on in the Holocaust. They, they had played it off for a long time that the United States was like, oh, we didn't really know. Like, and that's why we didn't get involved right away. And we tried to play this whole like hero card. And, and once we knew, we came in to save you. And then Ellie points out, he's like, nope. We, we, we have evidence that proves that FDR knew the whole time. And it's brutal, right? Like that is something that is one of the biggest tragedies publicized, right? Like I'm not gonna say like on a large scale because there are huge tragedies, right? Like what what happened in Russia um, was brutal. Um, you know what happened to the Armenians? Brutal. they like they're they're huge, huge things. Um, but the Holocaust takes center stage and so the, we'll talk about that one the the systematic obliteration of a people happened and the United States knew or the people in power in the United States knew about it the whole time um, you have the you have the situation with the boat that comes in and and drops port in the in florida um but because we were so anti-semitic at the time we told them all that they needed to go back to europe and so we sent all of those people back to nazi germany these people that were trying to flee from this situation going on and so we send them back right and so you have this example of ellie Wissell is giving this speech about it and he's like, I hope that we learn from this and that we need to be active and we need to be proactive and we need to go out and we need to save these people. And I struggle with that. I really do. I'm listening to a survivor of somebody who survived one of the most brutal, systematic killings of a people group. I've heard his stories. I, like, I've read them out loud to my students. It's disgusting. It's terrible what happened to them. And meanwhile, I can't reconcile with the violence that we would poss- that we would cause going in and trying to save other people. Because what Ellie is ultimately asking for is violence to overthrow the violence that yeah. is occurring. And I just don't know how to reconcile that. That's the hard part for me. And whereas a president, how do you answer that question, right? If you see somebody that's struggling and you see somebody that's, that has this going on, right? Like, what do you do? And especially in our day and age where it's like we, the United States got over-involved. We tried to be the hero in every single situation. But again, like I said, you read this by Ellie Wissell and he's the guy who was like, help these people. We, want, we said that we wanted the United States to know if, if we could somehow get a message to them. They would bomb the railways. And keep them from being able to ship people to Auschwitz and Buchenwald. And it was like And it's it's sad. And I, I every time I have my kids watch that speech and I I don't know how to respond. I don't know what to do with that. And think about presidents, like I, I can't even imagine.
0: So if you're listening to this and you've not heard this part of World World War II history. What Colton's saying is true. The United States Secretary of State had received plenty of information from Europe um, that the Holocaust was systematically happening, and it shared it with FDR. What gets you said something about the? I I know what. It's
1: the St. Louis is the ship.
0: Yeah, in Florida. Um, You said because we're anti-Semitic. Th- that wasn't the reason why, but I will say the secret- FDR Secretary of State was anti-Semitic. And that's always hung on cloud over the fact that he kind of shared information with FDR, but he was holding a lot of informa- information back because he didn't really give a damn. Well, But also,
1: this is something that's important, is the United States, whether you like it or not, was in the world, was very anti-Semitic at that time. Uh, there was a lot of Jews living in New York um, that had come over. They had the means and the opportunity. And, and, and what's always funny is, like, you do research on it, is the Jews that came over worked really hard. Um, they saved a lot of money. They did a lot of stuff. And so everybody's like... I mean, uh, Jay Z has a line in one of his albums where he says, do "You want, do you know why all the Jewish people own all the property in America?" And he says it's because of credit. <laughs> like they right. they saved up all their money and then they lent money, and you know, and it was and it was that whole thing. So, um, but the United States goes all the way back to Shakespeare's Merchant of Venice.
0: <laughs> okay, so we've kind of delved in. This is a, we've almost turned into a. This is like a movie history podcast which is fine because we don't have to just talk about church and the faith it's a good we started out by talking about myths this is a good point to step in and point out we have font we have a mythical view of World War II yeah we all do I have it
1: yeah yeah I'm I don't blame us <laughs> it's like
0: but the world the the mythical view of World War II is a myth it's fake. We didn't get into the war to save Europe. We didn't get in the war to save the Jews. We got in the war because we got bombed by Japan. And for inexplicable reasons, the next day, Hitler declared war on us. Right. There's a good argument to be made that if he hadn't done that, we would have continued the same course we had been in Europe, which is just providing munitions and other material... To both sides, by the way. (laughs) Right, for them to fight the war. And we would have just fought the Japanese.
1: Right, we were were like, hey guys, keep this war. But he
0: declared war, and then it was like, okay, fine, now we got our reason to fight Germany too. Because, again, the myth is everyone was really happy about getting into the war. They were not. That's the whole reason why FDR never declared war before the Japanese attacked us right. and just didn't jump into the war because Americans weren't itching to get into a war right as soon as we got bombed at Pearl Harbor we were itching to go and then the fed, the US government fed all of the reasons for going off and attack you know then invading Germany and all that kind of stuff so back to the argument to the discussion about what do you do? Basically,
1: when do you when do you when do you use violence? My answer is never.
0: And if someone's listening to this and they're really upset about it, this is the this is the part of the podcast that that this is the whole genesis of the podcast. You need to take a step back and and listen and be comfortable with someone. Again, this is back right. to the the self defense pacifism art, uh, episode we had the the flip side I'm just gonna I'm gonna play devil's advocate is you know one of one of Bill Clinton's big one of the things he regrets has always regretted was not stepping in. To Rwanda when a million of Hutus, Tutsis, whatever I get used to know that but you know, literally got hacked to death mostly by machete or burned to death in churches. And you see that happen. And you think, what could we have done to stop that or mitigate a lot of that bloodshed? I don't know the answer to that. The older I get, I don't I'm not quite where you're at, but the older I get I'm I get to where you are at. And I've said this before, we should probably do a whole podcast. This this what I'm gonna say is probably good for a whole podcast. We should probably have like multiple, like do like a round table. <laughs> Cause I think we get different perspectives. One of the reasons why we're having this entire conversation is because Augustine in the fourth century Decided to write this this just war theory, where it basically told the church, you know what? It's a, you you should never use violence, but the the one time you can use violence is if you're trying to impose peace, and that has been literally not only just the well, Christ, Christian and and Western is hand in hand at that at this point that has been the justification for war for most of two centuries. And for me, about 10 years ago, I don't believe in that justification. And so I guess the, the position I'm at, I'm not, I'm not where you're at, But the position that I am at is, if you're going, let's say you are the president of the United States, and you are a Christian, or you're a military officer and you're a Christian, and we'll stipulate here, neither one of us have been military, because we always got still, I haven't served. There is no, there is no heavenly justification for going to war and if you feel that is your last option know that you if if that is the last option and that is the best best option you have to accept you are you are bringing hell on earth you are not bringing in any way jesus's kingdom And it might be that those are decisions we have to make. But there's no sugarcoating it. There's no just war theory. There's none of that. It is. We've we have. Two, either someone. Whatever that has brought this brought us to this. We have now descended into evil being done. On both sides and whether or not you think you're justified and you're trying to bring peace, you're still engaged in evil. Yeah. From a from a from a Jesus heavenly perspective. And I would even say that <laughs> in response to the book you're talking about. Sending US soldiers into Europe and fighting for two years and then getting finally to the camps it might have been it might have been necessary but it was a necessary evil it wasn't a necessary war dehumanizes people yeah it it <laughs> it it breaks up families it dehumanizes men it permanently changes them uh For those of us who do love freedom, wars always take away freedom. You look at the United States, every time we've had a war, the the government's gotten bigger and more powerful and taken away freedom. Freedom and war do not mix because the government ultimately, in order to fight that war, is using guns to fight that war and will use those guns to take either your literal flesh or the money it needs from you in order to execute that war and tell you all these other things that they, you need to do in order for them to marshal what they needed to go to war. And then when the war's over, they don't give those powers back. They just keep them because we'll need those powers later when the next boogeyman comes over the horizon. We need to be ready for the next the next war that we might have to fight. There is nothing that good that comes out of war. And so for you to say... you to be a pacifist there's just well i guess i go back to what i said two episodes ago i find it very troubling that at a time throughout united throughout the u.s history when we've been involved in war and uh let me say this because i when when i was editing that episode i was talking about the united states being in war look i know we're not like literally fighting russia in the ukraine but let's let's everyone put their big boy, big girl pants on. We're basically, it's a proxy war. We are fighting the Russians. We're just sending money and guns and material and munitions. We're, we're in a war. Um, when we've been at war, generally speaking, the only war I can think of is maybe world war two. But even in World War One, I, I mean, World War I, we had, we had a large group, number of Americans who didn't want to be in World War I to the point where Wilson started locking people up for protesting the war and called it sedition. Obviously, during Vietnam, we had a very big peace movement. During the Cold War, not even a hot war, the Cold War, we had a very active vocal peace movement that was adamant about trying to prevent us from getting into a war. I see zero evidence on the television, in social media, anywhere where one is supposed to, to digest news, that there is any kind of peace movement in, this uni- in the United States right now, or anywhere else. Because we're fighting for freedom in Ukraine, and Putin's a bad man, and that's apparently the only way we can prevent this, is just unleashing hell in, in Ukraine and parts of Russia and making their lives miserable for freedom, which is a joke, by the way. Just because you have elections doesn't mean you, you have a free country. That, that's one of the great myths that everyone seems to buy elections don't mean freedom you can live in a democracy that has very little freedom you can also live in some you can live in an authoritarian government by that i mean a monarchy or something similar and have lots of freedom because the king's just like yeah i don't really care elections do not equal freedom ukraine has been since it split it from the the from russia from the soviet union a corrupt country in part because of what the United States has been doing in inserting itself in there, but regardless, even if it was this Jeffersonian democracy, this wonderful, or a French Republic or whatever, whatever it likens itself to, it's behaved as as the Balkans have. <laughs> where is where is a group of people out there saying we need to we need to end this war? There, we, there's a better way to solve these differences. And I don't see it. And it should be coming from the church. Right. And it shouldn't, taking this full circle back to decoupling your politics from your Christianity, that peace movement shouldn't just be a bunch of Lutherans and Episcopalians and some Catholics who tend to be on the more of the peace side, but should involve some evangelicals some Baptists, some Church of Christ, some Pentecostals. There's these movements should be across the board. But off too often they're not. You wanna wrap it up? Let's wrap it up. So we've been on kind of a this has been like a a walkabout. Like a, a walkabout. Yeah, like walk uh we hope you enjoyed tonight. Uh, we'll keep going on with this subject. May, uh, maybe not that was we'll probably the next episode or two do like Christmas stuff since
1: we're getting close to Christmas.
0: Um, somehow find something controversial about, Yeah, Christmas. we'll ask you
1: guys to like, donate money or something because it's that time <laughs> of the season right right we're not running on like a church schedule or anything like nobody would ever do that in the <laughs> church office ever uh, uh but yeah we know that you got christmas bonuses coming in so we'll we'll probably drop a couple things about our patreon sure and all that kind of stuff you know well
0: you know there's a couple of the, like the if you've listened by the time you've listened to this there's the episode with uh nolan and that episode was heavily edited so if you want the raw one you need to pay for the patreon and it is raw in some instances Uh. all right that's it for this episode of the go to hell podcast we thank you for listening if you like this podcast please do us a favor always go to your podcast app of choice right now it's itunes but when we're up on the other ones rate us and review us so other people can find out about the podcast and engage in the conversation Questions, comments, critiques are welcome. You can find us at Twitter. You can go find us at Twitter. You can find us on Instagram now. Uh, we have a website, go to hellpodcast.com, and you can find uh, how to contact us there. And you can email us. Oh, and we're on Substack too. So go to Podcast, Substack, Twitter, Instagram. Find us, reach out to us, or in the comments of your podcast app of choice. Um otherwise, go to hell.